Greetings and welcome to the Asian American and Asian Research Institute's Friday Lecture Series online edition. I'm Anthony Wong, Program Coordinator of the Institute. Thank you for joining us on this uh, beautiful Friday evening for our talk tonight on Immigrant, Refugee, and Citizen Futures, Anti-Armenian Racism and Armenian American Organizing Past and Present uh, by our panel. Uh, tonight's panel will be moderated by uh, uh, Professor Rastigar from uh, NYU. Uh, Professor uh, Mitro Rastigar has actually presented in the past before at the Institute in spring 2022 on her book, Tolerance and Risk, How U.S. Liberalism Racializes Muslims. And that talk is actually available on our website to view afterwards. Please welcome Dr. Rastigar. Thank you, Anthony. Um, I'm really looking forward to the conversation this evening. Um, again, my name is Mitro Rastigar. I'm a sociologist and clinical associate professor in liberal studies at NYU. Uh, as um, Anthony made reference to, this e event is hosted by the Asian American Asia, sorry, Asian American Asian Research Institute, a CUNY-wide organization that focuses on issues that are relevant to Asia, Asia, Asian America, and other Asian diasporas. Uh, tonight's panel of scholars and community activists will be discussing Armenian American histories from immigration bans in the late 19th century to executive order. 13679 and ongoing displacement and marginalization from homelands and belonging today. In uplifting the long history of Armenian community activism in the United States, this panel seeks to inspire participants to envision Armenian futurity through the lens of collective action and social justice. We are joined by members of the Armenian Act American Action Network which is an advocacy and research organization organizing Armenian Americans fighting anti-Armenian racism, teaching Armenian American history, and forwarding civil rights, immigrant rights, and refugee rights for Armenian and all communities in the United States. And so I would like to start by introducing our panelists, and we'll go alphabetically by last name. Dr. Susie Abadjian is co-director of the Armenian American Action Network, uh, Dr. Abadjian is the city clerk of Glendale, California. Prior to this position, she was elected to the South Pasadena School Board and served as its president. She concurrently had a career in K-12 and higher education. Dr. Abadjian was named Congressional Woman of the Year by Representative Judy Chu. She is a Syrian-Armenian immigrant, daughter of refugees, and granddaughter of genocide survivors. Sophia Arman is co-director of the Armenian American Action Network. Uh, Sophia Arman is the community organizer, writer, and scholar, is a community organizer, writer, and scholar from Los Angeles. Um, she also um, is currently a PhD candidate writing A People's History of Middle Eastern Americans and Race, A History of Racial Classification in the U.S. and Southwest Asia and North African um, Communities. She has been building in the feminist Palestine Solidarity and Swana movements for over a decade since she was a teen. Her work has appeared in Vice News, Ms. Magazine, The Middle East Eye, Los Angeles Review of Books, NPR, Feminist Realities Magazine, and other places. Um, Thomas Simsarian Dolan um, is currently ACLS Emerging postdoctoral fellow in Middle Eastern and South Asian studies at Emory. He recently taught as a Fulbright U.S. scholar in history at American University in Cairo after receiving his PhD 
in American Studies from George Washington University and studying at Yale and NYU. Dr. Dolan has served as a visiting researcher at the Doha Institute for Graduate Studies, publishing in Mashrik and Mahjar, Huffington Post, Egypt Migrations, Mufta, Arab America, The Armenian Weekly, and HowlRound, and currently serves as the co-coordinator of the West Asian section of the Association of Asia, for Asian American Studies. And finally, we have Christine Sergenian Yearwood, who is a New York State field organizer with Armenian American Action Network and is involved with campaigns for the Education Justice Committee and Census Representation Committee. She is the founder and CEO of Upstand, improving accessibility for pregnant people, families, and caregivers. Christine holds an ME in higher education from Harvard University, an MST in ESL from Pace University, and a BA in sociology from Brown University. She served on the board of directors of Girls of Armenia Leadership Soccer and Birthright Armenia, and is currently on MTA NYCT's Advisory Committee for Transit Accessibility, um, LIRR's ADA Task Force, and is the PTA Board Co-Chair of Community Affairs and on the diversity team at her daughter's school. So as you can see, we have a very um, accomplished um, panel here. And uh, without further ado, I want to I uh, begin by posing some questions to our panelists. The basic format we're going to follow is that I'll pose a question and each of our panelists going um, in the same order that I that I introduced them in will respond to the question. We can have some back and forth along the way if, if anyone likes, um, but we'll have a series of questions and then following that um, panelists will engage questions from the audience, which I hope you'll put in the Q&A. Um, so the first question for everyone is um, tell us about how you grew up. What did your Armenian identity mean to you? Um, in the U.S., when did you first feel that larger U.S. institutional life did not reflect your identities or communities' experiences? Um, Dr. Abadjian, would you like to start us off? Sure. Thank you so much for having us and for uh, moderating this conversation. Um, I am an immigrant from Syria. I was born in Aleppo. And I spend the first part of my childhood in, in Aleppo. Um, my family was in Aleppo because of the genocide. My grandparents were driven into the Syrian desert um, uh, on a death march, and they were survivors of the death march. So they ended up in Aleppo in a refugee camp. And that's where my father was born. And um, also my mother was uh, from the next generation. And, and so... Um, so I, we, we've been refugees in Syria, and uh, I consider myself a third-generation refugee because we have been displaced from our ancestral homelands. And although Syria is our home too, uh, we were we were always second-class citizens in a way in Syria. And so um, we, uh, I can tell you a little bit about my schooling experiences. Um, I went to an Armenian school growing up in Aleppo, but we still weren't allowed to speak our language outside of the um, one hour of Armenian instruction in our schools, as was mandated by the government. And um, we weren't allowed to be taught Armenian history. And so uh, so there were restrictive 
language practices, even in, in that setting. Um, and so when we immigrated to the U.S., I, uh, my family was in New York for a while. And um, the first school that I went to was PS7 in the Bronx. And uh, I remember being an English language learner and and my teachers didn't really know what to do with me. You know, um, they didn't know how to help an English language learner, an Armenian English language learner. So I essentially uh, was given a coloring book uh, and this was in sixth grade. Uh, a coloring book, and that's how I spend my days coloring and sitting in the back of the room. So um, that was my first introduction to American schooling, public schooling. And um, and then my family moved to Glendale, and uh, and uh, you know there were lots of Armenians in Glendale. It was a large Armenian community, but even there, um, Armenians experienced a lot of anti-Armenian sentiments and racism. And so I remember being told on the streets of Glendale to go back to my country. And that's that's an odd thing to say, because which one, <laughs> um, you know, and uh, we we don't have a country to, to go back to. But um, I, I remember that growing up in Glendale, I remember an instance when um, the school lowered its flag for the Armenian Genocide Commemoration Day. And there was a really... Um, big backlash from uh, the rest of the Glendale community. So we had newspaper articles saying, why why should we lower the flag for, you know, the genocide commemoration day? And again, you know, um, this is America, et cetera, et cetera. So those those have been the defining experiences of, of my childhood or young adulthood in, in the U.S., and um, and even this this continued into higher education. When I was a PhD student, even in at UCLA, I remember in a race and education class, um, I was asked by the professor to for for an activity class activity to join uh, one of four racial groups. And I said, well, I don't really identify with any of these. And she just brushed it off and said, just just pick one. <laughs> and so um, so those are some of the ways that I've experienced personally, um, anti-Armenian racism, um, and also my family too, just thinking about my parents um, going to doctor's appointments and not being talked to in a way that's respectful, et cetera, because of their accents. Those are all, all things um, that have impacted not only my life, but I, but our larger community. And, um, being Armenian has has all also brought with it its 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 strengths. You know, it's it's made me aware of other people's experiences, uh, other immigrant communities, et cetera, other refugee communities. So it's it's enabled me to to build uh, to build coalitions and um, and really work uh, with different communities here. Thank you. And next will be Sophia Herman. Yes, thank you so much. It's so wonderful to be here, everyone. And um, just have to say we deeply appreciate the Institute's work and all of the amazing community um, initiatives that you all do. So uh, my name is Sophia. Um, I'm coming to you from on as well. And um, a little bit just about my Armenian background, which to be honest, I don't speak to very much because we're all in having to do the kind of collective we, which I think is very important, but I will just say, um, uh, yeah, I'm from a little bit of a younger generation than I think that maybe our other panelists, but I am, um, 
I am a kid who grew up in the like immediate post 9-11 world and um, I grew up in Los Angeles and I grew up in a very big and also very tight and and oftentimes actually really misunderstood Armenian community um, in California. Um, my family did come here as refugees um, originally from the genocide and we've been here for at least two to three generations depending on what part of my family you're part of. Um, and uh, uh, we uh, were part of the kind of community in Fresno on one side of my family and the, the oldest uh, Los Angeles Armenian community as well. And that's looked like, if I'm being very honest, <laughs> watching every um, wave of generation, generation after generation actually face very similar things in the U.S. Um, and so on one hand, there's this really ongoing invisibility that I deeply felt as a child where people did not understand anything about my background whatsoever. And then also this like very odd hyper visibility, especially I will say because I am a kid that grew up in the war on terror era. Um, you know, that's and 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 really like in the middle of it, I was nine when 9-11 happened and um, I was very young when I remember that uh, Armenia even was placed on the first Muslim ban, which was called Ensirs at the time, um, which most people don't know. And I was young when, you know, kind of the Iraq invasion happened. And um, I will just say that, at least for my own community, um, centers of Armenian life have been very important. Um, and that has always looked like places like church or cultural organizations, which have never just served as those things, but have actually also been very important spaces of continuing Armenian identity in this country and doing so against, you know, forces of either assimilation or racism. And I really consider them very uh, connected. <laughs> um, and uh, the only last thing I will just add is that, um, I think for myself, it was very obvious, to be honest, because I think our communities um, across the kind of region, right, had a very important uh, political awakening that I don't think was new, but definitely expanded, right, in these last 20 years. And so in institutional life, I will just say that I was a, uh, you know, young student who was oftentimes looking at these categories, whether it be the census or whether it be like how resources were um, were distributed on campuses, the resource centers that existed, and, and that got me involved in what became the SWANA movement very early on um, as a teenager. And all that was was um, actually a call to decolonize, right, how we think of our communities in the region and a divestment from whiteness, a challenge to white supremacy, and actually a space for us to address how we are complicit with other forms of, you know, oppression and be able to build actual inner community, inner religious, right, solidarities amongst each other as communities, which I think Armenians particularly feel because we're often mi minorities within minorities within minorities, right? So I just want to name that. And yeah, that's all I'll say, but just really happy to be here and like so inspired by everyone on this panel. Thank you. Um, Thomas? Thanks so much. Um, yeah, I, I'm struck already in the conversation that although we are, you know, of like slightly different generations and grew up in very, very different places, I'm going to echo a lot in, in my own way, again, coming from a different generation, coming with a different kind of family history. A lot of what we've said, you know, I think that for me, I grew up in, um, well, I was born in Bermuda uh, and grew up in South Florida. And I flagged Bermuda because like within that, um, I was born right after birthright citizenship was eliminated for the UK. 
again, because of the fear of Muslim immigrants. So in some ways, even like my, my initial, my first passports, my first citizenships, my naturalization in the U.S., you know, like is tied, was tied to already questions of sort of, you know, Islam and, and the Middle East and these, these kind of misperceptions. But growing up in South Florida, I think I experienced a very different kind of racialization. One of my earliest memories in preschool um, is so inane, but it is of a woman handing out cards of truly foul, like birds, you know, to memorize and saying, oh, this one is like fat and brown like you. So this is this is this is good for you. And I grew up in a space in which, again, people were constantly perplexed by my identities, my looks, you know, and so I, I think in many ways grew up. Um, and I think there are still people with whom I grew up who think that my name is Tomas, because the assumption was that I was Latino. So for me, questions of identity and particularly the disconnect between what was I, I was experiencing in the outside world versus what I was experiencing at home, where my, my family was very much like, we are Armenians, we are Middle Eastern, you know, like we're from Dikonegert, we're from Fenese, we came through Aleppo, also a generation, you know, earlier, I think, than, than, than Susie's family. Um, and Cairo, like, these are our people, these are our places, and the inability for outsiders, you know, um, to, to kind of understand that was always sort of a crux of my, my understanding of place in the world. Um, and then just to kind of briefly think as I continued going through college, I was actually, this will age me, um, a freshman when 9-11 happened. It happened immediately in my college experience and in many ways it defined my college experience and my, certainly my intellectual formation. And we can revisit this, but you know, for me it was a time of great anxiety, you know, um, in addition to taking a course um, with a genocide denialist, um, you know, which as a 19 year old, I was completely, I felt completely unprepared to respond to, um, you know, the war on terror and particularly the sort of ongoing um, villainization, right, of the Middle East was something that I really took to heart, you know, and, and couldn't shake. Uh, and the last thing that, that I'm gonna say is that I, I've experienced, I think, a sort of similar confusion and frankly, similarly problematic assessments of my own identities um, in another life as a performer. So after I graduated, I moved to LA actually and found Armenian community, um, but was performing. And in these performing spaces, and this is something which I know many, many Middle Eastern folks share, I was constantly asked about what I was, why I looked the way I looked, too exotic to play white, literally quote unquote, eyes too slanty, <laughs> you know, to play white. So like this sort of questions of racialization and my own Armenianness and embodiment of Armenianness have been so central to, to both my personal life and then in turn have become really central to my, my, academic, my academic life and my projects thinking about identity. And Christine. Um, so my family also came here uh, right before and during the genocide. Um, I grew up in Maine, actually, which you may know is one of the whitest states in the United States. So I think that really shapes a lot of my experiences. Um, a lot of microaggressions growing up that I think formed my identity. My first nickname at school was Wildebeest. Um, I remember overhearing somebody say like, oh, yeah. Oh, he likes her, that girl with the, the weird last name. Or, um, you know, I, I brought in a pistachio cake once for my birthday and nobody would eat it. They said I was a witch and just things like that. Um, so I think really formulative experiences growing up there and, and also as an adult now in New York City, even being called a terrorist or different things like that. Um, I am, 
I, I think because of where I grew up, I had a good um, start with misunderstanding about Armenians. Um, I always took it as my role to inform people about, um, you know, where Armenia is, history, things like that. Um, it's never really mattered to me that much that other people have the wrong ideas about us culturally or geographically, because um, I feel secure in that. I think, you know, uh, although I experienced a lot of negative things growing up, I think my family has always been very positive about being Armenian, um, very proud the way we've talked about it, celebrated it. It's always been something very special. Um, and I've absolutely sought things out in my own life I'm um, half white, half Irish Catholic, Boston, um, and half Armenian. And so for me, you know, I took language classes. I, I did Birthright Armenia. Um, I started, restarted the Armenian Students Association on campus at Brown. I've really, like, tried very hard to uh, learn how to make food and, and be a part of things um, and make sense of sort of my childhood experiences and my place in the world. Um, I have struggled at times with inclusion within the Armenian community, I think. Just things about me. I don't speak Armenian very well. Um, I'm half white. I uh, didn't grow up in California, you know, those kinds of things. But I think I've taken my experiences growing up as kind of like an other and um, really used that as a framework to build inclusion and coalition and um, understanding between myself and, and other people and groups. Um, and I, I guess to answer the second part of the question, just in terms of like feeling like institutional life did not reflect my identities or my community experience, um, obviously education curriculum has been a big thing. Um, you know, we're one of the earliest civilizations still remaining. Um, it's nowhere sort of in the history books. I certainly never learned about that in school. Uh, the genocide and the things that we have offered to the United States as immigrants and refugees coming here um, like others mentioned, forms and applications, sort of not having any collective power behind, um, you know, the, the things that we are checking off. There's no, like, protections or purpose or programming that, that comes out of that for us. Um, as a small business owner, no protections, no sort of, like, um, benefits to us in that way. And, and I think one thing we've seen over the last few years is certainly but mental health in um, had the healthcare system is is really lacking with trauma informed um, mental health care. So, you know, a lot of different institutional ways that we're certainly not included or things are lacking for us. Thank you all so much. Um, it's really powerful to hear your stories, but also then to hear the connections that you see between your personal and the institutional experiences that you're having, particularly in schools, as so many of you have talked about. Um, so the next question is about history. And for this one, I'll just let you all, since we have the order set, <laughs> you can just kind of follow each other. If people want to jump in, that's fine as well. But um, I'll, I'll assume you'll follow the basic same order. So the question is, who are Armenian Americans? Can you speak to histories and experiences of Armenian Am Americans immigrants and refugees in the United States, what has defined some of those experiences and histories? And Susie, would you like to start us again? You know, there have been different waves of immigration for, you know, Armenian immigrants coming into the U.S. And I'm, I'm not a scholar of history, and I know we have two two scholars who actually work on these issues. So I, um, I want to 
invite them to jump in. But um, I think the the first biggest wave of immigration was because of the genocide, refugees from genocide coming to the U.S. And, um, and you know, throughout different wars and um, different things that Armenians have faced abroad, I think those those propelled um, different waves of immigration. Um, and so, yeah, I think I think Thomas and Sophia have a lot to say on these. On this question. And Susie, your lived experience is so important and valuable and all of ours are, are really, and I really want to emphasize actually not only as organizations, but how we think about how we use history, right, is that oftentimes um, like histories of record or like institutions right now are not actually talking about us or our histories and how important our stories are, right? So I think that's one way that we we answer this question too, right, is like we actually know our histories really deep and we really believe um, I think as an organization, but also um, hopefully as Armenian Americans um, build movements and how we think about the future, right? Um, that we need to start seeing ourselves as experts of our own experience. You know what I'm saying? Because we are. Um, and, you know, it's like either no one's writing on us or they're writing about us wrongly. So we might as well speak on ourselves, right? <laughs> um, so I say this lovingly back to my uh, wonderful, good friend, um, Susie. Um, so I will just say, uh, just because I know there's folks here who either have ex a lot of experience in Armenian communities, are Armenian and or people who have maybe are just really understanding Armenian American history for the first time. Um, yeah, there have been these kind of um, like what I would call flashpoints of mass immigration to the U.S. Um, for Armenians. And that has looked like, uh, you know, it, it oftentimes is actually um, a refugee experience. And I think that's not always the case for everybody else in our region. I think oftentimes we hear only an immigration story, but we don't talk about like that there's ongoing displacement or that we're oftentimes having to both organize people in the U.S., but actually also for our homelands that are under attack and shrinking. And so I think that has been a part of the Armenian um, American dynamic. So Armenians in the U.S. And I don't just mean Armenians who are, when I say Armenian Americans, I don't just mean like citizenship status. I mean, like literally Armenians in the U.S. Um, and I think uh, I will just say, so yes, it, those those kind of flashpoints have looked like um, the Hamadia massacres and the genocide, a huge, massive refugee crisis that came to the U.S. Um, uh, and, and a series of anti-Asian exclusion that they actually bumped up against. And I think it's really important for us to know about that, um, especially within um, this space, because Armenians um, as Ottoman nationals during that wave um, just like Arabs and Assyrians and other peoples, right, were actively um, uh, under attack by the U.S. government using anti-Asian -ex exclusion laws. Um, and uh, that's also for Arabs, Iranians, Kurds, Turks, everybody from the region largely at that time. Um, and this is actually how the naturalization uh, or how Armenians achieve um, American citizenship was actually under that refugee crisis. And the reason why I I bring that up is because things like the Immigration Act of 1921 or even the response to Armenians coming during the Nakba or the Lebanese Civil War or the Iranian Revolution, right, then later on, 60s through 80s, another major wave. And the backlash to that, right, is 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 also then repeated in the 90s, right, when the Soviet Union falls and Armenians come to the U.S. and there's its own form of Red Scare also because of 
um, the newly, uh, yeah, the fall of the Soviet Union and Armenians under uh, that. And um, today, where Armenians are quite literally, we're on, quote, the Muslim ban, but people couldn't even talk about us, right? <laughs> like, they literally could not even understand that we're not Arab, we're not Muslim, and yet thousands of Armenians were impacted by that executive order. And so I, I only just say this um, very briefly to say that, you know, oftentimes in the Armenian community, we really focus on our incredible accomplishments, as we should, right? Um, but I also want to say those accomplishments have happened oftentimes because of ourselves, because Armenians organized Armenians, because Armenians have helped each other retain our identity in this country, to build our own power in this country, oftentimes against institutional power that's both in the U.S. and abroad at the same time. So I think part of that is definitely something that you see regardless of when people's families came here or if they're literally new, newly arrived, that has been consistent in the history of Armenian-American um, uh, experience in the U.S. So I think also just one one thing to add too is post nine eleven and all the wars in the Middle East, including you know um, the Iraq War, the Syrian War, all of those you know the Lebanese War, all of those wars created refugees and lots of Armenians were displaced yet again uh, during those wars and and I think we did see immigration spike during those times to the U.S and also to other other parts of the world. Yeah, just to build on that, um, you know, I, I, in my own research, just one thing which I want to uplift, you know, is even, and I don't want to emphasize, you know, purely, you know, disadvantage or, or as Sophia said, you know, like neglect that Armenians have had agency, you know, I mean, and have navigated these systems and have worked both with each other and with other, you know, marginalized groups to affect change, you know, so like I, I am struck that even as even facing these kind of um, restrictive immigration regimes, looking very closely at the immigration record, you see people circumventing, you know, systems and finding ways both to um, overcome what are multiple bans on Armenian emigration from the Ottoman Empire that are bans on Armenian immigration into the United States. Um, and then you find people find really strategic ways to to move, to naturalize, you know, and, and, and also to affiliate with each other, you know. So I'm, I'm, I'm proud and I study a lot of the history of the Armenian General Benevolent Union, one of our oldest organizations founded in Cairo in 1906, you know, that, that both connected Armenians for the sake of education, for the sake of language, for the sake of culture, and then also was a, a relief organization, you know, that did the act of gathering after the genocide to make sure that Armenians were placed, you know, with Armenian families, right, contrary to, unfortunately, um, organizations like Near East Relief that did incredible work to save Armenians, but also were interested in placing Armenians with non-Armenian families and particularly with white families. Um, I'm also like inspired by stories of uh, kind of mid-century people like Levon Kashishian, you know, who was the press agent for the Arab American, the Association of Arab American University Graduates, um, who was also instrumental in passing um, the UN resolution on genocide, working with Arab regimes, working with Armenian organizations, because he was an you know, Armenian from Palestine who spoke Arabic and wrote, you know, fluently in English, Arabic, Armenian, and rallied people. I'm excited by folks like Charles Gary, who work with the Black Panthers, or Baba Vakian, who work with like CPUSA, and a number of folks who have been involved in this activist tradition to connect with other marginalized communities, you know, and to really resist Armenian marginalization and work to make Armenians' lives 
better, you know, and we have people across the political spectrum who are conservative as well as, you know, kind of leftists. Um, so I think there's also a story here about, about agency, you know, and people finding a way to make do and finding a way to affect change, regardless of their circumstance. But yes, there's unfortunately long histories of multiple forms of marginalization, um, and, and in many cases, oppression, right, that, that we're highlighting here. Christine, do you have anything you want to add? <laughs> I will add just something New York specific in terms of who are Armenian Americans. Um, shout out to CUNY. And um, so we also have a very long history here um, of immigration and um, particularly in what is now Curry Hill, um, Gramercy Park, Kipps Bay, Murray Hill in Manhattan, um, Brighton Beach in Brooklyn and um, Bayside in Queens. And so when we think about, you know, areas here where we have churches and schools and grocery stores and restaurants, um, just pointing that out for anybody who lives here, those are sort of the areas that people have come to. I would personally say I am so happy to see Armenian American Action Network as a U.S.-based organization. Like Sophia said, so much um, of our time in community organizing has necessarily had to be for Armenia and Artsakh, but it's also so amazing to see um, us working on social justice issues here in the United States and younger generation coming into that um, and campaigning with each other across the country and with other groups. So I just want to point that out that I think we've come a long way um, with that as Armenian Americans as well. Uh, if um, may, yeah, go ahead. I just wanted to add one thing. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I think that Armenians often focus on on stories of resiliency and accomplishment. And we actually don't like talking about our struggles and oppression. And I think it's it's really important to talk about these things because we need to raise awareness that these things are happening and address them. And uh, I think that we, I think a lot of us use the genocide as, as you know, the, uh, I guess, the level of oppression one has to experience in order for us to speak about something, right? So everything below, below that level is, you know, we're fine. We're not being massacred. So we're okay. You just, you know, you just need to, people ascribe things that they experience to just, you know, oh, it's, it's, yeah. You know, just let it go. Just move on. Don't talk about these things, you know, whether it's anti-Armenian racism that people experience, whether it's microaggressions. We just try to not talk about these things. And I think it's really important to highlight these things because um, because that's how people will know what we're experiencing and, you know, what we're going through. So I just I just wanted to throw that out there, because a lot of times when we are in Armenian spaces, we always celebrate our our great accomplishments are, you know, everything that we've been able to do. Um, so that's, that's all I wanted to add to that. Uh, that, that comment's actually a great transition to our next topic, which is um, about erasure um, and how histories and issues continue to be marginalized. And what, what do you think, what kinds of impacts this has on U.S. Armenian communities, the kinds of erasures um, around histories or issues that, that matter that people are not talking about? Um, so would you like to continue with that theme? Sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, I think, 
again, I think Armenians have been so focused on on the homeland or on survival that we have not had really a space to to really talk about what we've experienced here in the U.S., I think. And I think it's really important because, you know, on, on a daily basis, we, we don't see our, our students um, learning about their, their history in the U.S. You know, we focus a lot on the genocide, which is important, but we've, we've had a lot of history here, you know, over 100 years of history in the U.S., so and and uh, over a hundred years of activism and being involved in different things, pushing for change in the community, um, in the communities that we're in. So um, that's one thing that Armenian American Action Network has been able to do is to mobilize around these issues. So, for instance, in California, um, uh, there was then you know a, a law passed AB 2016 to form an ethnic studies framework. Um, that would be implemented in California public schools. And so uh, we were part of an effort to push for the inclusion of Armenian American studies within the ethnic studies curriculum. And, and California has one of the highest, you know, numbers of Armenian students in our public schools, but yet they are completely invisible because, because we're not counted, we, you know, we're not counted on the census. So we're not in any of the categories in, in federal and state and local, you know, categories. So our students aren't counted when it comes to the California dashboard, for instance, that keeps track of absentee rates, um, graduation rates, um, suspension rates, et cetera. So we have no idea how our students are doing, not only Armenian, but all MENA students are doing. Um, another example is the California Healthy Kids Survey that that's a survey that um, the purpose of it is to assess how students are feeling connected to their schooling experiences and um, whether they're experiencing any microaggressions or uh, whether they they feel that they're respected by their peers and, you know, all of those things. And we, we're unable to track those things because, because Armenian students aren't counted. So I think those are structural issues that impact our communities. And um, and we don't often talk about these things, and and the Armenian community often doesn't engage in these spaces because, again, we're so focused on, on on the homeland, etc. Um, and and you know the census is another another thing that we've been pushing for in in on for the past several months, and so again, that's that's for us to gain visibility because I'm I'm the city clerk in Glendale. And I see this on a daily basis. I just, uh, I was involved in the writing and publishing of a report on the status of women in the city. And when you look at all the demographics, you know, figures are that 35 to 40% of Glendale is Armenian. But when you look at the data, it shows that 71% of the city is white. And we're, so we're completely erased. But when you also look at poverty rates, you see that the white population has the highest rates of poverty, which is interesting because that's not that's not the same in other bordering cities. And so you would have to think of how the Armenian population is skewing that data. And and so when when Armenians are invisible, then they're not being counted. And so there's no way of addressing those needs, the needs of the community. So Those are some examples. Wow, this is so rich, and I really appreciate everybody so much here. I just want to say, um, 
Okay, erasure is a big one for us. So it obviously is something that we experience as Armenians, like Susie has mentioned and others, right? Um, like on a global scale, right? So I don't think it's a coincidence, for example, that we're often left out of every category. Um, what I will just say is that, you know, we we talk about the genocide because as Armenians, we don't believe the genocide ended. For us, that's not like this moment in history. It's actually part of our ongoing experience, like in this world, is actually having to be dispossessed, right? Like from your identity, from your culture, from your community, from collectives of other Armenians, and to not have actually access to your historic homeland, which millions of Armenians in the U.S. do not have. And we have to remember that this community in the U.S. was formed by people who were exilees and who quite literally cannot return back to where they actually are from. Um, and it doesn't exist and, anymore. <laughs> and that matters because um, that that translates across generations. And the reality is, is that the Armenian um, community globally, right, is really a global nation. And within the region, it's a nation. So it's always crossed multiple borders. And I think that's hard for people to know who aren't coming with experience uh, about Armenian history and, and definitely something for people to know is that Armenians are a very long historic nation within the region of West Asia and, and, and North Africa. These, our community has been there for a long time. Um, and, uh, you know, we've only had self-determination or even a nation state for like a little over 30 years in, in a very small portion of the historic Armenian homeland. And so that erasure is very present on, on Armenians' minds globally. And I don't say this to generalize, it's just actually true. It's part of how we have to identify and coll collectively be in space together or not. Um, so much like Palestinians, right, we have a larger diaspora than we do of people in our homeland. And that's another important fact for people to understand. And so political power also exists in this very dispersed way. Um, and this is very apparent for people on our minds right now, because quite literally, as we're doing this, okay, um, a portion of the Armenian, uh, traditional Armenian homeland, right, is under ongoing um, um, forces also of that displacement. And uh, that's in Artsakh, which, which is now under an over 170 day blockade, quite literally, where people don't have food and are trapped in essentially an open air prison. Um, and so the idea of erasure, I mean, we just feel it as Armenians because like it's not on any Western news anywhere, right? And the the ability for us to even see <laughs> see like ongoing crises addressed is just so not a priority for our the U.S. government. It was very clearly, and not a priority for media transnationally. You know, we're just seen as as um, oftentimes not important, and so that's why it's very important that we believe we're not necessarily important, but that we we value uh, Armenian American and Armenian um, uh, you know struggles, and and our collective power is very important. Um, I just want to transition to that. Really does relate. I really believe that like. The ongoing erasure is connected, like quite literally paralleled, right, in the erasure in our education, in our studies, in our healthcare. Like, I actually do believe because we are Indigenous people in this region, we also have that paralleled in wherever we go. Um, part of what that has looked like, um, as Susie mentioned, right, that looks like in education, but it's also looked like in housing and healthcare, and that's just two things I'll just quickly say. Um, so because we don't have access to data, 
for example, just as people are being displaced in our homelands, like Armenians are actually actively, these Armenian communities are actively pushed around regardless of where they are in the U.S. And we we feel this, um, especially as an organization, we've seen this happen, um, especially to Armenian immigrants in, in particularly um, like saturated cities across the country, right, where oftentimes um, things like affordable housing um, uh, things like, you know, housing in actual Armenian, uh, spaces is, is constantly in flux and constantly part of that. Well, we don't have this for our elders, for our, for our people, for our youth. Um, and that relates to that lack of data. And, and the only other part that I would just say the lack of data, which again, because as an organization, we've really identified that being invisible on the U.S. census as Armenians literally cannot help us help our own people to address our needs because we can't even one, know what they are, and two, prove that they exist, right, to our policymakers, um, is in healthcare. And all I will just say on this is that uh, when we think about erasure, quite literally right now, doctors cannot tell us, like, rates of disease, rates of, of problems in healthcare for Armenians in the U.S., despite the fact that we're almost a million people in this country and have been here for literally multiple generations. And that is because we are invisible, in government data because of the census. And so right now, things quite literally, doctors have to go to things like the Middle Eastern surnames list for Armenians, of which Armenia is also on that, even for people who are not from Armenia. And um, it just misses people like, for example, me or Susie is a really good example also. So my last name is not a traditional Armenian last name. It doesn't have an IAN. And both healthcare, like literally doctors and even in our advocacy groups, look at at roles of people's names and look at their last names to figure out if they should put them in their data set like that is just missing literally my name was stolen in the genocide i wouldn't be counted our uh susie's from syria she's not from armenia she wouldn't be counted as armenian i mean it's stuff like this when we're not consulted when we're not at the table actually making decisions right that we see how it impacts us and that erasure actually has quite literally impact on people's lives because healthcare is about if you live or you die. And and that's very, very obvious to me about why we need Armenian American input in everything in this country. So. Yes. Yeah, so great. I mean, I, I got, there's so much I want to say and you've already said so much like really, really wonderful stuff. You know, the one thing I think I would point out maybe um, to think about like this particular space, you know, and looking at like an Asian and Asian American research Institute, you know, I'm, I am, you know, my research really, really stems from trying to understand how Armenians went from being a prototypical oriental subject 100 years ago, which they were. <laughs> you know, if you look at the ways in which Armenians were studied and the ways in which Armenians appeared in the popular press and in culture, you know, Armenians have been uplifted since the beginning of opera in Italy. You know, there are, there are really old histories of Armenians as prominent objects of Western fascination, Western exoticism, Western Orientalism. And I think the, the erasures that we're speaking about come about, I would say, unfortunately, as a literal result of the genocide that mean there are simply fewer Armenians. So we fall out as an object of concern in, in material terms. But I think they also speak to, unfortunately, the methodological nationalism, right, or the way that nationalism or the idea of national and nation states frames that don't account for transnational communities like Armenians have so saturated how we think about the world, how Americans imagine the world, how Americans imagine racial nationalism and imagine the boundaries of racial groups. And I just want to say, I think, because this may be of interest to, to this audience here, well, should be of interest to everyone, frankly, these are constructs. You know what I mean? Like race, 
and the idea of the nation as a hermetically sealed mono-ethnic thing, right, that coincides with a political boundary, this is a construct and it's a relatively new one. And I think Susie, Sophia, what you're speaking to in many ways has to do with the ways that disciplinary boundaries have replicated political processes as a result of the Cold War and area studies, which privileged certainly geopolitical nation states as objects of concern that often did not know how to make sense of Armenians. And then we've seen that replicated in ethnic studies in that often we treat ethnic studies as siloed either ethno-racial or racial fields that don't make space for people who limb the boundaries, cross over certain boundaries, or don't fit within the kind of dominant paradigm. So um, I really just want to flag the ways that I'm so excited to be in a space like this and so excited to be building coalition. And I really, really take great pride in the work that, that I've been able to do in spaces that are multiracial, multiethnic, you know, like the Association for Asian American Studies that has made space for us in a push for curriculum in California and push for curriculum in New York and a push for curriculum in Connecticut because it, it embodies, again, the kind of liberatory politics of these disciplines, but it helps us really think beyond boundaries that don't serve us. That is not to um, undermine the Armenian nation, right? You know, which has existed as a concept for literally millennia. But it is to say that the way that we think about, again, the nation state or think about nationalisms, I think often do not make space for communities like Armenians. And that saturates academia as well as activism. And I think that's so often what we are really, really trying to, to push against to make space, to build coalition, and frankly, get us all free, <laughs> you know, from, from these systems and structures that harm us, universally harm us. Um, I am going to echo the educational space in terms of erasure. Um, so I think we all felt that growing up, you know, as indigenous people to a region, as immigrants, as refugees, and also as people born here in America, as Americans, um, there's just nothing in our curriculum that spoke to any of that. Not, not none of those parts, not world history, not American history, not um, the math curriculum, Aram has four pomegranates or the ELA curriculum, right? Like some of our literature, even mm, Armenian books. Um, and so that's something that I, that's actually how I became a part of this organization. Um, it was the Ed Justice Task Force. And so I saw um, a wonderful organization, CACF, Coalition for Asian American Children and Families had reached out and said, hey, there's this new curriculum coming out in New York and um, you're able to give feedback. And so I responded and I said, are West Asians going to be included? Are Armenians going to be included? That's something that I would really like to see for my children. I have three young children. It wasn't something that was there for, for me or for us, but I'd love to see that for my own kids. Um, we can be the generation that changes that, I think. And so um, got a wonderful response. So like, oh, we'd love that. And so I looked up these other three wonderful people on the panel and as much as Armenians can be strangers, they were strangers to me at that time, but I reached out to them and said like, hey, I, I, I followed your work in California and, and can we collaborate and, and work on New York? And um, so, you know, we've been recommending books to the New York City Department of Education librarian. We've been working um, with other organizations in coalition to get West Asians and Armenians and MENA all together included in this. And so, 
Um, you know, I think, like Sophia said, when we are not acknowledged or heard or seen or at the table, um, everything is decided for us, about us. And I think we can really change that if we um, work to educate others and ourselves. So you've all already raised some important issues, but I want to give you some space um, if you want to speak to any issues that you haven't raised or you want to go um, into more detail. Um, the question is, what are issues U.S. Armenians have faced and continue to face today? Can you tell us Armenians love to talk? It's great. <laughs> it's <laughs> so wonderful. You, Susie, you start. You start again. We'll go back down. In, I mean, there's so much to say. I think I think we've touched upon a lot of the issues that Armenians face. I think erasure is is one of the issues. Erasure in data, in in the curriculum, in and, and that impacts erasure in in other spaces, in political spaces. So, for for example, going back to the data, I always go back to the data because um, recently. The city of LA and also the city of Glendale were subjected to assembly redistricting the assembly districts, the California assembly districts. So, um, the, you know, you, whenever there's a redistricting taking place, usually communities, um, of color are taken into consideration. Um, if you're, you know, if you're splitting a community of color, um, in an inequitable way, then that that's something that that's basically addressed, and you know, that doesn't happen, you know, hopefully, <laughs> or at least it's it's um, it's addressed. However, um, the new redistricting in LA and in Glendale split through many Armenian communities and neighborhoods, and there was nothing that was done about that. No remedy because we're not considered a protected class. So essentially. Uh, we had one assembly seat, and that assembly seat was was dissolved, and you know new assembly districts were were formed. So we lost our one assembly member in in the California assembly that we had, and and so these are things that that impact us um, on a on a political level, and um, you know housing is another one, healthcare, all of these things, but also you know our our people experience, you know, microaggressions on a, on a, on an every, everyday level, you know? So if you, if you think about how our elderly are treated when they're in spaces where they can't speak English or, you know, if, if they're at the doctor's office or if, if they're doing, you know, if, if they're involved in any, any institution and they have to do paperwork, they have to, advocate for themselves. I think those are spaces where we see a lot of those issues come out. And, um, and you know, I think if if we think about what's taking place too in the past, you know, several months, we had a lot of just blatant anti-Armenian hate that was displayed in, in different cities like Beverly Hills and, and Glendale, where, you know, um, there were hateful flyers posted all over the city calling for the completion of the Armenian genocide. I mean, you know, these are things that our community faces and, you know, vandalism of churches and, and, um, you know, uh, I think the, and, and these things aren't taken seriously by law enforcement, because again, 
we are totally invisible. We're, you know, subsumed under the white category. So um, these are just, you know, addressed as vandalism rather than a hate crime, et cetera. So those are things that our community deals with every day. Um, and I'll just jump in and sorry to, to note that the one of the questions we've received is specifically on this topic. So if anyone wants to say more about it, the question is, I'm curious to hear our panel speak more, speak about more recent instances of anti-Armenian vandalism and hate 2020 to now in San Francisco, LA, Boston and other cities. So thank you for bringing that in. Great. Okay. Well, that's what I was going to talk about. So I'm glad we started it. Um, yeah, so I think the important thing to understand is that Armenians, again, um, are oftentimes minorities within minorities within minorities. And so we face like multiple and compounding systems. <laughs> um, and I know that can often be hard for people to understand um, when they're interacting with us in the U.S. But I think this is a reality that us and like us uniquely and I would say like Assyrians or um uh, you know, other Kurds, sometimes like other like transnational indigenous groups within this region face. Um, but very particularly, I mean, Armenians, uh, you know, my family is from Turkey, technically, right? So <laughs> Armenians face, uh, uh, you know, white supremacy and Turkish nationalism at the same time, right? And Middle Eastern nationalisms, right? That also are undoing them. And I think this is important uh, because we bump up against these also in diaspora here, right? Um, so, so recently, um, you know, there has been a string of very scary, like really scary and terrible, like anti-Armenian um, instances that have been like very violent. So we had a full arson, like full arson in San Francisco, where someone burned down uh, our community center and church and it was gutted. Um, and, you know, this was a space of like where Armenians come not only, uh, you know, to honor, to worship, to be in community with each other, um, but where people come to feel safe, right, as Armenians and where they come to to uh, build community, where they come to, you know, fight for our homelands, fight for for our community here. And um, there has been nothing that has come out about this, despite it being years on now. I mean, it barely made the news and it was only Armenians who were concerned about it. And then we saw another at least three to five of, of such such, you know, horrible and vile instances, my own church. And I know people, again, can't often think about this because oftentimes when we talk about church in the U.S., it's like we always revert to white Christianity. But like we also exist within multiple spaces in Christianity in this country. And um, we've watched literally how white supremacists have attacked like Assyrian churches uh, close to ours. And we've had, um, you know, people really misunderstand, actually, I think the level of, of how things have been in this country for so long. But I also want to name because of the recent um, ongoing um, blockade and war, <laughs> um, uh, my own church uh, in Van Nuys that I grew up going to that my grandmother actually was part of putting in these very important and beautiful stained glass windows that, in my opinion, are Amer Armenian American history, um, were all destroyed on the side of our church uh on purpose. And the police in in Southern California also know about who is perpetrating these things, um, but refuses to actually uh, uh, address address it and um, consistently is actually not um, uh, uh, prioritizing actually the, the safety of the community in in uh, in our largest kind of hubs across the country. Um, and this has looked like beyond, you know, the flyers that Susie mentioned, 
It has looked like several schools have been graffitied with just, I mean, they're just racial slurs. I don't know what else to say about them. Uh, directed, honestly, at school children who are literally, um, you know, 9, 13. Uh, and, and this has been like a huge, uh, massive moment of just an explosion of these incidences. And they're really not making news at all. Um, and I say this because we have to be able to, especially in a space like that is dedicated to Asian American organizing or Asian American studies, right, be able to understand how there's these multiple systems, right? Like if we look at Hindu nationalism, right, we understand how Hindu, Hindu nationalism and Hindu nationalist um, hate crimes, right, would be not okay for communities that it's directed against. That also exists for our community, and it can be very violent, and it can be directed towards actually the most disempowered or people without the, the least power, right, in our community, youth, elderly, like people who are literally in a religious center, right? I mean, and that's just a scary thing. And, you know, thank God no one has like lost their life. Thank God that no one, you know, has, it, it's gotten even worse this, than this, but it is such an obvious pressing time because it feels like we're kind of getting it from everywhere. And it also feels like only Armenians are organizing ourselves to try to stop it. And we really do need better joint struggle, just like Armenians need to be in better joint struggle with other communities in the U.S. Yeah, so powerful, harrowing, you know, just to, to, to echo, though, you know, I think that so much of our, I think, the reason I think, in, at least for me, I'm so drawn to education is that, like, it's like, to me, seems like the obvious. It's not a chicken and egg, you know what I mean? Like, we need education so people know who Armenians are, right, and can understand why we don't necessarily fit into some of these categories, you know, or why, you know, I think to echo Sophia, we have been intentionally not just invisibilized, but like intentionally kind of put into multiple systems erased in multiple kind of boundaries that don't quite fit for us. Um, that's, that's a real disservice to us. Um, I don't want to suggest that like a politics of visibility or recognition is the be all end all. No, I think our liberation is the be all end all, you know, but I see it as like a necessary step to educate and help people understand Armenians are profoundly impacted by the Beirut port explosion. You know, Armenians are now facing an existential threat in places where they have been indigenous and have been written about as indigenous since literally the advent of history. <laughs> you know, so I, I want to flag that there are these really, really serious things happening and we need other people. Ideally, you know what I mean? Like I show up for racial justice. I show up for various forms of justice, I show up for women. I show up and I want to flag also particularly showing up for queer liberation because I'm Armenian because I am sensitive to, because I understand what it is like to be marginalized, to face discrimination, to not be seen. And I know that for me, like education is a tool towards even a modest political goal that fewer people live in fear. So for me, what I wish and my dream for Armenians is that young Armenians, in some ways, I feel like it's an act of atonement. I don't want other young Armenians to feel the things that, not that I felt, again, deep disadvantage, I don't want them to be in a class where they're like, I feel like I'm dying because there's someone denying the Armenian genocide and these like nice, like Ivy League kids are like completely buying the story. I don't want generations more of Armenians to be refugees. I don't want them to be impacted by violence across the Middle East. I don't want them to be under assault in the Armenian Republic and have no one care. You know, so I think that there's, there's such an important education piece as a means to build broader communities of concern and say, yes, we are showing up for you, and Armenians have shown up historically, right? Again, we often are not seen as showing up, but we really, really have shown up. 
um, for many other people's, but also have other people show up for us, right? Because this is like an ethical choice that it's not about our own identity categories. It's about, again, our collective liberation. And one other thing which I just wanted to, um, to, to point out, I think this is so important and I think that I want Armenians to feel secure and safe is because then we will also be better to each other. And I wanna be honest here, not that I wanna air our dirty laundry, but I am deeply invested in an Armenianness that is capacious and inclusive, that is inclusive of people who have different gender identities, of different sexual identities, of different racial identities, of different linguistic identities, of different national identities. And I think, I don't think, there is scholarship that looks at trauma responses and the ways in which unfortunately, especially in diaspora, especially among peoples who are traumatized, there's a closing and a consolidation of boundaries in the most conservative, the most narrow, often far more narrow and exclusive than in the old countries, right, as it existed prior. And so again, what I hope this work does is to enable Armenians to thrive, however they identi identify, the multiple identities that they inhabit. And I think that's something which I feel quite intensely, you know, as a gay Armenian who wants to feel included in these, in, in, in spaces, you know, but again, to be really quite frank, we struggle, I think, because we are so often shell-shocked because we're dealing with, as you said, it's coming from all sides, right? And I think that my dream for Armenianness is to say, okay, how do we build an Armenianness that gathers, right? That welcomes, that nurtures. And that's why I think this education piece and showing up for each other is so important because it creates the conditions in which that's possible I don't think we are, unfortunately, quite yet. I'm going to build on Thomas's sort of closing um, in terms of Armenian mental health. I think that is mentioned it before, but in talking about what do we face and continue to face today, I think we've seen in the last few years, you know, um, we have intergenerational trauma for sure. And then you add to that um, the, the events of the last few years and, you know, things with Artsakh, with Armenia proper here in the United States, like Sophia talked about. And, um, you know, we don't see those things in the news. So we're getting our news through social media. And a lot of it is really traumatizing. Um, you're seeing people beheaded and tortured. And, um, you know, I, I think we looked at immediately following some of this and during some of this, the response to Ukraine and um, just seeing, you know, the comments, oh, well, these are civilized people and these people have, they look, they look like us, they have blonde hair and they have blue eyes and this isn't somewhere you would expect this to happen. So that's why we're covering this. It's close to home, they would say, you know, it's, it's not the Middle East. And so um, I think that's a really triggering and that's really traumatizing for people to experience. Um, and, you know, because these things are not recognized, everything that we're creating with like mental health databases for Armenians and things, it's, it's all organized with our community. It's all self-funded. We, we go back to the census, right? Um, and, and these things we're creating for ourselves in our own communities. And although that's special, um, it is not mainstream. And then I think we're not supported the way that we could be. Um, and, and people have really had a hard time with that the last few years. So when I think about kind of what are we facing today, I think mental health for Armenian Americans has really been impacted the last few years, especially. I, I just wanted to add to the whole men mental health issue and trauma-informed education. I think a lot of um, 
trauma-informed education, at least in California, focuses on ACES, the Adverse Childhood Experiences uh, uh, Framework. And that framework really leaves out uh, war, you know, kids who have been subjected to war, to uh, displacement. So it's it's more, you know, the trauma that they focus on is more family trauma, personal trauma. So there's really not, that's not even included in in the curriculum to address these sorts of trauma that our community deals with and, and experiences and other, not just ours, but other communities as well. So I think it's really important to expand the educate, the trauma informed education to include these, these sorts of experiences and to address them specifically. And, um, and yeah, I think um, that, that would really help our, our community. And I know it, it will help other communities as well. If I can, just because I know we're going to be wrapping up, um, I, I do want to just um, name some of the campaigns that we're all working on that's part of our organization that I think also helps to address some of what are our key issues or how we've identified this. Um, you know, we started our Mean American Action Network actually because we saw the gap in the ways that we, as as many has said, including, you know, all of you all have said before, right, we often have had to um, as diasporans, right? Like we are the front line of <laughs> advocating in the belly of the beast, right? For like our, our people also back home. And, um, at the same time, we face very real things in this country. So it, it, the, the lack of resources that Christine and Thomas and, and Susie are mentioning, right? Like it means that we're, we have a lack of resources and then we're like spliced amongst that, amongst so many issues. And so that, that lack of resources is really felt, I will just say. Um, um, but, but how we have thought about this as an organization when we're talking about some of those gaps is we're finally actually addressing Armenian civil rights in this country and immigrant rights in this country and refugee rights in this country. And, and historically, our Armenian organizations have had to, again, focus on our homelands because quite literally no one else is in the world. <laughs> and so, you know, knowing that we're trying to build that space to, to build it through a, a social justice lens, a racial justice lens, an immigrant justice lens is actually, I think, important. And we really, um, you know, appreciate you all supporting us and having us here and also encourage people to, to, um, build with us, you know, in the future. And some of our active campaigns that I think are important that are directly trying to address some of these very hidden, or I would say, um, you know, erased, <laughs> you know, it's an active force. It's not like we're, we're not talking about it, but I think the, the institutionally really erased, um, issues, um, you know, immigration issues are happening to this day, right? Um, the, the governor of Texas decided that Iranians shouldn't be able to build land and uh, just, or, or sorry, buy land, um, in Texas. And actually SB 147 just passed, <laughs> just so we know. Um, and, you know, anytime you hear, uh, a part of this region uh, of diasporas are impacted. The Armenian nation in this country is also impacted, right? Because we have Armenians in this country who are from Iran. We have Armenians who are from Syria, from Lebanon, from Egypt, from like that is part of our reality every time those things happen. And so we want to encourage you all to get involved in our campaign against SB 147. We are actively um, through people, especially in this space, which is so wonderful, um, you know, uh, working with CACF and and others to really put curriculum in New York that looks at our communities who we would think of as Southwest Asian, North African communities, Swana communities, right? 
essentially in our <laughs> in our our children's textbooks and our children's um, daily life, right in school. And we had a really wonderful success in California by being able to do that statewide. And now that actually, for the first time in history, millions of children will get at least a piece of that, even if it wasn't exactly where we wanted to go. Lastly, I really want to say um, our census work is very active, and it's also because we address how we think of anti-Armenian racism today, right, is that we need to be able to document these things. We want to document and uplift our stories, especially as Armenians in the U.S., all of the wonderful positive things we do, all of the incredible things we do. And we also want to make sure we document and trace instances um, and ways in which systemic uh, racism impacts our communities, because for so long, we haven't been good at actually keeping and writing this down or providing <laughs> this data, right? And so oftentimes when we go to policymakers and we say, why aren't you addressing us, Why, right? And they ask us, well, what do you got? We just sit here and we're like, well, We've been having to do so many other things, right? And so really tracking um, these issues and their intersections is a very important part of, of, of what we're doing right now. Um, and that means also making sure that Armenians are on the census with all other um, you know, communities from the region and knowing that we're a very large community in this country that refuses to be silent and we refuse to be erased. So thank you so much. Um, thank you. That was so powerful. Um, uh, we have about 15 minutes for the Q&A, and I would um, I want to invite everyone in the audience, please, to put your questions in the Q&A. We have two questions already, and one of them I know, Sophia, you were just speaking to, and I also have a little addition to it, um, if I may. So the question is, is there another category created if, uh, if there is another category created for the census, census, what would it be called? And I guess I'm also curious, you know, as an Iranian-American and listening to you, and I'm not Armenian, so um, I, I've learned a lot, and it's been, it's been really amazing to think about both uh, connections, uh, maybe some parallels, but also some really significant differences in experiences. Um, and also that, of course, there are Armenian Iranians, right? So, so that these are overlapping communities. And so, um, I would also be curious to, to hear more about what you think of something like Aswana category, um, given that Iranians similarly are not counted. Um, and how, how does one distinguish the specificity of, of Armenian experience? Um, Everyone's like, eh, I don't know if I want to touch that first. No, I love it. Actually, we do this all the time. We talk about this stuff all the time. It's the majority of our stuff. We love talking about it. Um, so I, I just want to actually, um, really put onto record something important, which is, um, the popularization of Swana was because of our young Armenian women and in this country. And now today, the term Swana is really being picked up so beautifully in Arab American studies, Iran American studies, Middle East studies, right across the country as this intervention, right, of a type of racial justice lens uh, to so much of our history. And I think that's amazing. I also want to say, though, quite literally, I want to put into record <laughs> Nairi Sharinian and Christina Mehrambud as uh, two Armenian women, young teenagers out of California, who decided to do the first SWANA checkbox on their UC, University of California, um, application, which gave us the first data sets for all of the communities that we've listed in the country in 2011. 
And that is where a whole host of organizations that I, I was there as a teenager and then a million other organizations come out of it and a bunch of debates and a bunch of histories. And I'm only saying this because we've always been present in these categories. Um, and if anything, if you really look at a lot of this history, just like Thomas mentioned, like Lebanon Constitution, right? Like we've actually been central part of the labor behind so many of these movement moments. Um, but I think oftentimes are not seen in the kind of visibility or like the recording of that history. Um, so I want to say that that Southwest Asian and North African really came out of, um, yeah, a student movement, really. I mean, in its in its most progressive or um, community focused way. And it came out of a student movement that was actively trying to have our communities learn about each other also beyond just having the the state have to deal with us or the the institution. Right. Put us within its framework or our schools or our curriculum or whatever. Um, it also was a way that like I learned about, you know, Kurdish history. I learned about Assyrian history more deeply, more broad, like really a bigger we. I mean, I think in so many ways, Swana communities in this moment in history, right, are going through what kind of East Asian pan um, Asian uh, alliances did, right, in the 1960s. They, they were debating out, right, um, kind of this category, right? Okay, we're facing, <laughs> we're facing, you know, different things, but also some things really tie us together and we should build power across our differences, right? And I think that's been the most powerful form of any of these categories. Swana has been most powerful, I have witnessed in the movement, when instead of us trying to say we're all the same, right? No, we center difference, that we are different, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't be in one struggle. We can be in one struggle and still be very different. And I also really want to, um, like love up on what Thomas said, because we use this all the time in our organization together, right? We think about how our category should be about including bigger, bigger, more, bigger we's. It's about creating bigger we's. It's not the opposites, but not about like pushing others out from us. It's the, the, the opposite. How can we create larger tents? How can we create, you know, more power for our people, respond to the material needs of our communities, right? And so I just want to say that, first of all. Second of all, um, the U.S. government has been testing a Middle Eastern and North African category uh, for the past uh, several years. At this point, it's actually a three decade long fight. It's a long story. We can go into that history for a long time. We don't have time for that today. But what I will say is part of the problem is that Armenians have not been part of that table for way too long. And I think we would have shaped it really um, uh, in, in many ways. But I will just say we're the third largest, even by the way the government thinks of MENA, um, third largest uh, category in that in that grouping. And we have been historically, um, literally, it looks like Lebanese, Iranians, Armenians. And the reason why we forward a type of Armenian specificity within any of these categories is because like other indigenous groups, right, because we cross borders within all of our heritage, right, we have to actually say it or we will just be subsumed and spliced in a million ways. And that gives us not helpful things when we're trying to address the compounded systems or compounded impacts that Armenians are facing, right? Because, of course, I watched this during executive order <laughs> very, very directly. I'll say that here, I'll give you an example. During executive order 13679, which people commonly refer to as the Muslim ban or what Trump did, the travel ban, refugee ban, right? At a lot of the airports, um, when people were coming in and trying to literally deal with uh, that they were being stopped at the airport and basically being told that they couldn't be with their families and they would be sent back, right? 
Like they're literally, people could not understand that they, people needed like Armenian language resources to translate what the hell was happening or like quite literally needed, right? Needed specific things about our communities that were incredibly diverse from this region, right? Like th we're, these are like diverse, old, amazing <laughs> communities. And so the more our categories, in my opinion, and I would say the way that we've addressed this as an organization are about how do we use them for our needs, right? Not the opposite. They're not there to use us. That's not why we're here. We also don't believe that they are like liberation. We believe that we need to sit with the, the, the key issues, ask ourselves, especially as Armenian Americans in this country and say, what do our loved ones need? What do our people need? We know we're fighting right now for our, an Armenian specific checkbox if, if this new category is happening, right? Because we know that either being subsumed or erased has quite literally life or death consequences for our community and has for a hundred years. And we can't, we can't go on this train anymore. I love that Christine brought up how like it was so obvious when we were watching the difference between Ukraine and Artsakh's like attention in this country. I mean, it's such an obvious thing for us on the daily. We don't get to be invisible anymore. But all I will say is that these categories are constructs. The, the United States views this entire region in a ridiculous amount of ways. These, uh, there is a history to each term, and, and, and Thomas's work goes into this, so does mine actually in the academy, but I will just say, there's a history to each term, and the problem with all of them is when we don't decide how we self-identify, that's our problem. When, we don't, when we're not actually in, this, in seats of, of decision-making for our community, and I don't just mean like in the White House, in the whatever, I'm saying like if our communities do not have self-determination over ourselves, you see how others then make those decisions without us. So we've been calling for an Armenian specific checkbox within the MENA category. We know that the majority of um, Armenians actually are of the heritage that they have um, identified already in this category. And if anything, we're either going to be even worse undercounted or spliced in a million um, spaces. And so we're really excited because for the first time in generations, Armenians have been fighting for this for so long. And we, we actually have a real shot. And so we're part of the important SWANA and MENA coalitions that are calling for these various categories across the country. Um, so before anyone else jumps in, I just want to ask the, the second question from Nancy Agavian. Uh, there are levels of racial, class, and citizenship privilege among the Armenian community. Any thoughts on how this complexity contributes to how Armenian Americans find solidarity among other communities fighting for visibility and justice? We have about five more minutes, so, Thomas. I can jump in a bit, and I actually was going to try to loop that into um, what we were saying about like the census and these and these identities and the way in which we're categorized. Um, the first, the short answer would be we are not all the Kardashians, because in seriousness, though, that is the inevitable question that that I am asked, and it's actually been really quite offensive, if not problematic, to see the Kardashians made to stand in for the entirety of Armenian American experience. And I flag that because we share a lot in common with certain groups, particularly Lebanese immigrants, but also kind of broader Asian American immigrants in that we have both a high level of upward mobility, but we also have a high level of poverty, right? And refugeedom, right? So we don't have systems that understand these kind of bipolar class positions or what it means to be what I've tried to theorize is like perhaps in some circumstances actuarially white, but in other circumstances, the opposite of that, you know, below the poverty line. So um, I think first, 
this is an education piece for outsiders, right? And in my own work, I look at Kaluska Benkian, who's a fabulously wealthy Mr. 5% oil magnate, who is often similarly made to stand in for Armenians as like these rich rug merchants, oil folks, greasing the wheels of European empire, who is secretly funneling money to Armenians who are undocumented peoples across Europe, across the Middle East. So this kind of, this misunderstanding of race, class, privilege for Armenians, I think has to do with our small numbers and has to do with this lack of education. And that's why I think it's so key that we have spaces like this where we're able to, able to educate. The second thing I was gonna say, and this is I think a misconception, not among outsiders, but particularly among Armenians, and the census is a really instructive case for this. When we are not given the chance to categorize ourselves, to echo Sophia, we are categorized wherever the state wants us. And that has meant historically, I, I've talked about this in terms of my own family in a project working on kind of a family memoir. My family is listed as Asiatic, Syrian, Assyrian, Armenian, from Turkey, from Syria, you know what I mean? Like in a number of different ways, literally on the census, right? So when you look at them in the immigration record, in the you know federal documents that are being generated about them in the United States, we they don't have a say over how they're being interpreted, right? And I think there's a misconception among Armenians. Oh, well, I think I'm in this space that ergo, I enjoy these certain privileges. And I think that what I, as a cautionary tale, um, Armenians have been categorized as Asiatic or Asian. They've been categorized in certain circumstances as African if they're coming from Africa. They've certainly been categorized and consistently racialized as Oriental, Near Eastern or Middle Eastern across history. Um, as late as 1980, actually, the Middle East was looped into the Asian category on the census. So I just wanna really reiterate that what we're pushing for, again, in terms of education, in terms of visibility, is more control over the terms of our legibility but again, I want to caution everyone that, that we need to come together and we need to do this work because otherwise we are ceding critical ground to often the government and others who are deciding for us in ways that may not be what we are often not what we would choose, not what we want. And it doesn't matter where, 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 you're, where you think that you are landing, you know, in terms of race, class privileges. Obviously that inflects your life and obviously that is a challenge for solidarities. But I just kind of want to offer like a cautionary thing like, we need to come together because you may not end up where you think that you end up, right? Or you may find yourself then liable or vulnerable in ways that you didn't anticipate because the state, society, academia, you know, whatever is interpreting you in ways that, that are not of your choosing, that are not your own. I think I just, I just want to add to what Thomas and Sophia said that Armenians can continue to be racialized in the U.S. It's not something of the past. It happens today. It happens, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're white passing or not. The fact is that even your last name is a marker for race. The language you speak, your cultural practices, all of these are markers for race. And Armenians continue to be racialized in the U.S. Uh, to diff uh, I know that it, people experience racialization in different ways to different degrees. But as, as a community, we are experiencing these things and, you know, the same is true for other communities. If you look at other communities, you have you have different experiences, but you you can make that statement that a particular community is being racialized, whether there are differences in, in, in the experience or not. So and, and that's why it's really important to highlight these experiences, because, again, I think Armenians have a really difficult time speaking about ra racialization because 
because we've experienced the genocide, because if things are not really bad, that we we don't think that it, it's it's worth addressing or warrant it's it, it warrants any attention, and we really have to to step back and and think about how these things build on each other, and we really have to educate the public, educate folks on what we're going through, and also document our experiences, frankly. So. Yes, we're we're pretty much at time. But Christine, I, I, I wanted to see if you wanted to make a final word or. Um... Well, I I will say something to the participants. Just that my my closing thought is about organizing and getting involved with things that Sophia mentioned. Um, I learned how to advocate with Upstand, which is you know we work with a lot of disability rights organizations and. Um, women's organizations, and I just saw something I wanted to change, and I didn't see anyone else doing it, and I decided I'm going to do this, and I didn't have the experience. I remember before meeting with an elected official the first time I sat down with someone in my neighborhood who works on housing justice, and I was like, okay, what do I do, you know, and and he said, you go in, and you have a specific ask, and this is how you do it, and um, just to say, you know, I'm learning things every day. I um, consider myself a smart person, but I feel dumb all the time um, because I, I'm just, I'm learning, I'm asking questions and reaching out to people. Um, but I think, you know, I was surprised by um, if an office gets five or 10 calls, they're like, what is this, you know, and, and maybe we'll pay attention to this or we'll find out what you're talking about. And I, I think you can really make a difference and we would love to have you involved. And I, I just, from my own experience, I'm saying if you see something you want to change, you you really can do it. Um, and we are also here and um, nothing is too small. Well, I think we are at time. So uh, thank you so much to each of you panelists. Um, thank you to the audience. This was such an invigorating, inspiring conversation. Um, I know I learned a lot and I'm sure that's true of of many, many others. Thank you to our panel and moderator for a wonderful mm -hmm. presentation. Please visit the Armenian American Action Network's website to keep up to date with their latest campaigns. Uh, the link is in the chat. And with that, have a great evening. Remember to be an upstander if you see a fellow person in need, and we'll see you next week. Thank you very much, everybody.